0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway honey today.
2: there and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host on this half an hour journey through culinary history and hope that you're all enjoying a wonderful spring day. And on this spring day, spring is, oh, spring is a time for wonderful things to happen in many respects. But what would 20 chefs be doing making 10,000 hors d'oeuvres for, and dinner for about 600 guests, followed by maybe a little intimate dinner for 300. <laughs> the royal wedding, of course. And royal wedding fever has spread like wildfire on both sides of the pond, actually, as I found out uh, talking today. And, of course, in any era, there's no expense spared when it comes to the food. And although we don't really know what is going to be served for... Princess William and Kate Middleton's wedding—we can be assured that it will be elaborate, and I'm sure very time labor-intensive. And uh, I don't know that they'll scale back so much. It's in, pa- in the past times, feasts have been scaled back, but the only—I mean—the only thing we do know is uh, something about the cake, and of course, a royal wedding cake. What would a wedding be without a wonderful cake? And one of the layers, as tradition has, it will be fruitcake. But I've heard accounts that the rest of the cake will probably be some intense chocolate that Prince William had liked from a, as a child. He liked uh, the McVitie's chocolate biscuits, the tea biscuits, tea cookies. So this cake is Fiona Cairns, who's a, a celebrity baker, is going to be baking it. She's baked cakes for the likes of Paul McCartney and, and the rock band Pink Floyd. And I guess she's going to crush up all these chocolate biscuits and add some dark chocolate and make a a wonderful chocolate cake. That will be a big hit, I'm sure, all covered in what else? Royal icing. And I guess that's where the name royal icing comes from. The, the fruitcake, of course, is, is always covered in at least two layers. Uh, one would be probably more of an almond paste um, in beige color, and then the final the final covering is, is always a, a white uh, royal icing. But the wedding feasts now are certainly more modern-type foods. Uh, we've heard that there's going to be um, the canapes will all be uh, showcasing British food. And in fact, I think the whole meal will most likely be showcasing British food. The They call it a wedding breakfast. And they are breaking the fast, obviously. And that's a sit-down, generally a sit-down dinner. Although this one might be buffet style. We don't know. We'll find those things out. And uh, the... The, on the menu and we're going to find out more about past dinners from someone who's done all, quite a bit of study on it but the um, the dinner will most likely be things that come from actually from the grounds uh, from the you know uh, Prince Charles is very heavily into organic farming and sustainable farming and much of the produce as well as the meat will likely come from their own farms and that's, that is sort of a nice turn of events. I think it probably did. Well, this is the only way they had it in the past, but you know, over the years it did not, and, and now he's revived that practice. And it's going to be kind of a logistical nightmare because, as I said, they have 600 guests for the Queen's lunchtime reception, and then they've got to turn that right around, these 20 chefs, and cook dinner for 300 again that evening so it's no matter what they make we can guarantee that it's going to be um, a fine dining experience with china from the 1700s and hand-painted and and uh, very elaborate settings now it could be because prince um, prince william does like to go out to dinner a lot and someone was speculating that maybe he would have one of uh, london's more modern chefs cooking for him then again they may have the um the royal chef cooking. Um uh, Flanagan is his name, I believe. But um it will be even if somebody someone said, Well, but maybe they'll have they'll go to more modern food like sliders and mashed potatoes, <laughs> but I doubt that will happen. If that does happen, it will probably be served with quite a bit of flourish. Uh, you know, back in the in the day there were easily ten courses. There may still be ten courses, we don't know, but uh, up to up to ten courses would be served for the royal banquet feasts. And someone who is has done a lot of research as I said will be joining us on the phone from England, and he himself does a lot of recreations of of period food. and that is Ivan Day. So when we come back from a brief musical break and a sponsor break, we're going to hear straight from Ivan Day about banquets of the past and what were
3: served. Okay. Mm. I still don't know what I was
0: waiting for And my time was running wild In the dead end streets and Every time I thought I got it married, it seemed the taste it was not so sweet. So I turned myself to face me. I've never caught a glimpse of how the others must
1: see if they car I'm much too fast to take that test change and face the strange to change your wanna be a richer man to change your hills. Turn and face the strange to change It's gonna have to be a different man. That may
3: change me.
1: following is a public service announcement from heritage radio network tune into the food scene tuesdays at 3 p.m. on the heritage radio network hosted by michael harlan Turkell, photo editor of edible brooklyn and edible manhattan magazines he'll further explore the amalgamation of food and art by talking to artists from a multitude of media guests will range from photographers food stylists interior architects for restaurants industrial designers all the players that make you want to eat with your eyes Get ready to feast your ears every Tuesday at 3 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network.
2: Hey, we're back talking about the Royal Wedding. I mean, you cannot pick up a magazine or newspaper or turn on the television without hearing something about all the plans for April 29th. And I am happy to welcome with us somebody who knows quite a bit about all those wedding feasts of the past, and that is Ivan Day. Welcome, Ivan. Hello. Welcome and I'm so glad you could join us. Ivan is really best known for a lot of his museum exhibitions of recreated historic table settings and he teaches uh, historic cookery at his wonderfully restored home in the Lake District in, in England. And uh, Ivan I was fortunate enough to see one of your exhibitions. Well, I think back in about I think it was 99 at the uh, it was London Eats Out. And, oh, yes. Oh, you did a fantastic table with all the stuffed birds, the stuffed oh. swans and ducks. and uh, I mean, it was like a lesson in taxidermy. <laughs> um, is that something that would actually have been served at wedding banquets in the past?
4: Yes. We've got menus where you've got these Extraordinary pies with birds sitting on top of them, like herons and swans and bitterns. And these were often served at high-status feats of all kinds, like coronation feasts, where they pulled all the stops out. It was more about a magnificent display of excess, more than anything, just to show the status of the host and the guest
2: well the I mean the elaborate we're talking feathers and all folks I mean these birds are in their natural state it seems and the pastries that are just formed and the sugars formed into beautiful uh, sculptures I mean these were really uh, will we see any of that this year you think I don't think so
4: um, we're in the middle of a worldwide recession and these royal celebrations tend to keep an eye on what
2: I did mention a little of that at the open of the show, and I'm, and I think that's that's a rather nice thing that's that's happening. Um, but many of these dishes that uh, for banquets in the past had been on the royal banquet menus for hundreds of years. Uh, what would some of the what would some of the past? Let's say, well, of course, Henry the Eighth had a lot of practice been um, <laughs> having a wedding feast, many wedding feasts. What would some of the banquets had, have been like? Let's say in the in the 16th century.
4: Well, the really disappointing thing is, although Henry got married six times, we don't have any idea of what was served at the six wedding feasts that he would have experienced.
2: And no, no records,
4: no royal there no, no there aren't any records of those particular dinners at all. In fact, um, we have very few exact bills of fare or menus from early wedding feasts we have quite a lot of coronation feasts where we know a lot about Uh and I suspect that the the big wedding feasts the royals were not much different from that but what we do have which is really fascinating is in a late 15th century manuscript an English handwritten manuscript from about 1480 which is called For to Serve a Lord we have a prescription for a feast for a bride and this is a wedding feast for a very high status probably a royal or at least someone who is in the nobility and it's a five this this meal uh, uh, specific to the occasion so the very last one at the end of the fourth course is really memorable because it is a depiction of a woman in childbed there's a lady lying in a bed and um, probably surrounded with her friends and possibly a midwife um, and this is a kind of statement of the actual purpose of the marriage is, which is to create a son and heir, um, so that, that the dynasty can continue. Um, and these sculptures always had a meaning, they, they sometimes are very religious, but this one I just find extraordinary, because it is actually the earliest account that we have of a wedding feast in this country, um, with sculptures. Now, what these things are really is um, they are forerunners in some ways of the great ornamental wedding cakes that mm-hmm. were exhibited at royal weddings in the 19th
2: century. Is that so is you, that pretty much where you um, have have seen that the wedding cake became a traditional service was in the 19th century? That we actually had the, the wedding cake or the tiered cakes? The,
3: the wedding
4: cake is fascinating because Um, They they originate from the medieval marriage ceremony, where the bride and groom went from their house to the church, and they took with them bread and wine Mm -hmm. to be blessed by the priest. And then these were taken to the place of the, the bridal feast... The, the word bridal means a bride ale, a bride up meaning the ale is beer, so bride ale is oh. the name of the feast. And they took the, the, the wine and the, the bread, and it was shared out amongst the guests, but it had been blessed by the priest. This has got nothing to do with the Holy Eucharist, with the communion, the Mm -hmm. wafer, and the wine. It's to do with the marriage feast of Cana, where Christ turned water into wine and created this miracle so all the guests could be fed. So it's a reference to that. But because it was a special occasion, the bread um, became cake in the 16th century. So the bakers who made it would throw a few dried raisins or currants and some spice into it and some butter. Uh, maybe some eggs to make it richer and these cakes were really part of the bridal procession so they were carried from the bride's house to the church where they were blessed and then back to the place of the feast and they were cut up at the end of the feast and distributed to everybody and they were enormous there's one recipe from the 17th century if you make it it weighs over 30 pounds My goodness. and carried by um, either men or women with a special napkin tied around their neck to help them support it. And there's a marvellous painting of a a wedding feast from the 1580s by uh, a Flemish artist called um, Hofnagel, Joris Hofnagel, who was exiled in London at the end of the 16th century. And he painted in incredible detail this wedding, and you can see four people carrying these um, so they were carried as part of the procession, but the other thing they had was a great golden cup full of the wine, but by this time the wine had become spiced and very special and sweetened, so it was for a special occasion. But I think what happened was that during the English Civil War, these cakes were outlawed. The Puritans didn't like them. It was the English Taliban they, they found <laughs> upon these things. Um, but they they emerged again after the Civil War, but they changed their form. And by this time, they now were not made like a loaf of bread, like the original medieval offering at the wedding. Mm -hmm. Um, They had become a proper cake and were made with butter and didn't have yeast in them. And they were cooked in a tin or a wooden hoop, so they were the same shape as a modern cake, a round cake. And they were decorated with almond paste, which actually in the 18th century was called matrimony. It's an old name for marzipan. And they were iced with a kind of royal icing, and then a bit later on, they were ornamented with symbolic figures of, you know, doves and um, sheaves of wheat, which was symbolic of fertility, and um, at first they were just one story high. And then the very wealthy families, the royal, started to get their confectioners to make the most remarkable pieces of sculpture or fantasy on the cakes. And the earliest one we really know about is Queen Victoria's when she married Prince Albert um, in 1840, and the the cake has got this.
2: Bread have been, that. Preserved, right?
4: And yeah, <laughs> dry. yeah, yeah. One is preserved in a, in a, in a silver box, which yeah. is specially made for it, and this, they still have them in the royal collection. <laughs> but that really started a fashion because um, the next really extraordinary royal It's not really, it, it, it's it's more architectural. It's, there's only one cake at the bottom, it's not three cakes mounted on top of each other with pillars in between. Um, that doesn't really start to happen until the late 19th century, uh-huh. from about 1880 onwards. Right. Okay. And there's lots of stories about this, because
2: We all need a story for something. And, uh, Absolutely. As far as some of the other food goes, I, I had read somewhere that it is traditional for the, at royal court, at the royal weddings, to serve quail eggs with celery salt. Are you familiar with this practice?
4: Now, I have heard this, um, but I have never seen a menu with them on.
2: And I want yeah so I wondered if that had any significance in what that was all about.
4: Yeah. I don't know where that comes from. I've heard the same story. Um I tell you I have been to a couple of receptions at Buckingham Palace myself, not not to weddings but to other functions. Mm-hmm. And I must tell you that the kitchens there um are superb and uh, what they're absolutely brilliant at are canapes. I've got somebody in there who is like a canopy genius who uh, makes these wonderful, very elegant, you know, little um fripperies really, which um, you get with your champagne. Mm-hmm. Um, um I gather from some of the rumors that have emanated out of <laughs> palace recently that the canapes will probably feature quite a lot, because I, I think this young couple want this to be an unstuffy, fairly informal occasion, party, rather than a right? great
2: state. Yeah, a, pa- um, a party, It's like because they, they do like yeah, to
4: party. They like to party, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but what's extraordinary is that if you look at the wedding breakfasts of the past, um, if you go back to the 18th century, when you get very grand music, probably an Italian pie because um, polpette, a little meatball. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came from Lombardia, from Lombardy. That's why in England it was called a lumber pie. It was a kind of luxury dish, very expensive to make. Um, but there are four different soups on the table. This is in the first course. And there's a wonderful dish called a pulpatoon, which was a kind of um, coarse meat or um, like a meatloaf, um, Now, there's a sirloin of beef à la Royale, which is a wonderful um, beef soap. and 18 quails on it. Um, And there are also um, some fish dish. There's leverets, baby um, hares, eels, collard eels, and a number of sweet dishes as well. There are cheesecakes and there's a a pyramid in the centre of the table made of little glass cups filled with different flavoured custards. Wonderful. So once you've eaten that, you then move on to...
2: Well, the food all sounds extremely labor-intensive, for sure. And, I I mean, when you say you've been in the kitchens, and this is quite a feat to prepare all this food, knowing also that it can't come out a la minute, it can't come out and be served piping hot. This is all food that has to be prepared in advance and that can withstand sitting around for a while before it gets eaten. Well, the
4: interesting thing is that, Often we're on a very large scale. So when we think of a roast joint nowadays, we tend to think of a little three or four pound piece of meat which we put in the oven. Mm-hmm. But when they roasted, say, a, a chine of beef, you're talking about a joint that weighed twenty five, thirty pounds, wow. which would be still hot for an hour later
3: mm-hmm. on the table.
4: So they 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 had figured that one out actually. The, the thing is, you've got to give these people a lot of credit because. I, I would challenge a restaurant brigade now in some of the best restaurants in New York City or London to produce this wedding feast I'm describing with its three courses of 19 dishes. So you're talking uh, nearly 60 different items, and some of them are very elaborate. Right. I would challenge them to do it, hmm. um, not in their modern kitchens, but in a 18th century kitchen where they have no electricity um, and they have no running water. That's right. um, they are working often by candlelight to produce it but they are producing it still up to a very high level because these aristocratic people you look at the way they dress look at the furniture they sat on look at the artworks they surrounded themselves right. with everything
3: weren't
4: sit yeah. down in their finery and, and, and have a bowl
2: Absolutely indeed and and Ivan, you do know what you 're talking about because you do recreate these these meals in your own kitchen you 've got the <laughs> the open hearth and the and all the uh, the period uh, cooking utensils, so yep. you know how difficult that is firsthand
4: yeah right. yep. well, interesting enough. Um, 10 minutes ago, um, we ended the two-day course. I've been running a course for six Canadian food historians and museum curators and food writers, so a wonderful group, and we spent two days intensively producing 18th century food and uh, yesterday we roasted two different meats, a, a joint of veal and a leg of mutton in front of the fire, and I made some really intricate dishes over the few days. Now, the way I operate is this there's me, there are my six clients who come on my Course into my period kitchen. That kitchen can only operate with a large staff because the kind of things we're doing are really, really difficult. I've got them, I've got my clients. Mm-hmm. They become my servants <laughs> for two days, and I use them to try and recreate these very ambitious meals. Um, and that's what we've been doing. So, you know, it, it can be done. Um, and it can be done here because I've got a wonderful collection of period cookware and equipment. Is all usable. It was so beautifully made that I'm still using some of it 400 years after it was actually
2: manufactured. That's well, I want to tell people that, um, our listeners, that if they want to see some of these wonderful pictures, both of your kitchen and of some of the incredible uh, period tables that you have recreated, the, the food on the table, the website is historicfood.com and you've got wonderful pictures on that site, I must say, of, that is representative of the work you've done. And you've done a lot of work for as I say, for uh, museums and yep. uh, and also, uh, aside from lecturing and, and writing, um, you do consult for uh, for some television shows as well. Is that correct? And
4: well, yeah, I do more than consult. I, I presented my own series about six years ago, which is called Hungry for the Past. And I've just um, finished, well, I finished filming um, in November a 20-part series, which has just gone out on British television, which is called Royal Upstairs, Downstairs.
2: right.
3: I
4: cook um, dishes for Queen Victoria in 20 different programs, in 20 different great stately homes up and down the country. Mm-hmm. So this is, actually, the
2: this is actually edible food and not just food for show?
4: This is edible food. Interesting. But many of it's also quite showy, too.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, we wouldn't expect less. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
4: but well, you know, my favorite ever reconstruction that I ever did of a, of a historic meal was actually in New York City um, about 18 months ago um, in the Metropolitan Museum. Um, I worked with the ceramics department there and recreated a table um, for Maria Theresa, the Empress of Austria, um, and it was up, I think, for six months in the museum, mm-hmm. and I was told by the staff that over half a million New Yorkers got to see it, so um, I that's don't know wonderful. if you got to see that one yourself, but that was my favorite one ever that I did
3: Oh,
2: that's fantastic, did, Yeah, and you yes. worked on the Food Network's uh, Food Fit for a King as well, All Right.
3: Yes, yes, that, yes. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, there are just there are is no uh, shortage of celebrations going on. None of them will be quite as grand as those that you've described, but I there are even on this side of the pond, as we say, there are breakfasts and feasts being planned at different hotels, although they are sunrise, but with the time difference, of course you have to get up at 5.30 in the morning to partake in some of these events, but everyone wants to watch the celebration and there are uh, the Palace Hotel and the Lowe's Regency, they're all having these elaborate wedding breakfasts that people can go and watch on a big screen while they uh, partake in some fineries themselves, and uh, to be a fly on the wall, to see some of the dishes as they come out i'm sure it will be a wonderful groaning board and uh a wonderful do you think it's going to be a buffet style or sit down
4: um i think part of it will be a stand-up but i think the major bit will be sitting down um i suspect that you know that the, the royals follow a kind of protocol, which they have for centuries. And I think it's very difficult to erode that completely, even though these two people are very young and totally um, unpretentious. But I suspect that the palace machinery in the background will have a lot
2: to do with it as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, the idea of, a, of a standing in line at a buffet, I don't, I don't think will sit too well with them. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Well, Ivan, I have to thank you so much for, for joining us and giving us even the speck of, I know, knowledge that you have, and, and hopefully we'll have you back again and we'll talk about more yeah, subjects that because would be wonderful. you really have a lot to offer in the world of food history, and, and I appreciate your time with us. And again, I want to mention to our listeners that uh, we will post uh, Ivan's website on our page when, it, when the show is posted, and uh, it is historicfood.com. And I hope everyone will tune in on April 29th to see for themselves what the Royal Wedding will be like. Thank you for listening. I'm Linda Palaccio. This has been A Taste of the Past.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. In 2010, Escapemaker.com won an Emmy Award for their Agritourism Webisode, so this year they thought, why not bring Agritourism and Green Getaway ideas right to you? Come to the Green Getaway's local food and travel expo on April 30th at One Hanson Place, home of the Brooklyn Flea and former Williamsburg Savings Bank. Presented by Amtrak, Zipcar, and I Love New York, the carbon-free event will be a day filled with food, prizes, workshops, and kids' activities. Over 50 getaway destinations, from counties to local farms and bed and breakfasts within a day's drive or train ride of New York City, will be exhibiting on the main floor and in the huge bank vault downstairs. See what's hot and sustainable travel and receive special show-only discounts. Grow NYC will be doing workshops on the green market, and Appalachian Mountain Club will offer workshops on adventure bicycling and hiking via mass transit. EscapeMaker.com will be giving away over 50 getaway prizes, ranging from zipline adventure passes to an overnight stay at Mohonk Mountain House. Travel greener, eat local, come to the Expo on April 30th. Get your tickets now at www.escapemaker.com. Whole Foods Market celebrates Earth Month with the Do Something Real Film Festival, a collection of six provocative character-driven films focused on food, environmental issues, and everyday people with a greater vision. Come see one of the six features at City Cinema's Village East from Saturday, April 16th through Thursday, April 21st, every night at 6 p.m. Learn more about the films and special events at www.dosomethingreal.com. That's www.dosomethingreel.com Sponsored by Whole Foods Market. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. The Snacky Tunes compilation has arrived and is available for free on our website heritageradio network.com. This compilation features live performances from some of the hottest acts around today, including Midnight Magic, Surfer Blood, Overhopper, and more. Again, you can download this compilation for free on our website heritageradio network.com and make sure to listen to Snacky Tunes every Monday at 2 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network.